Dobrý večer. Good, good evening. Uh, so great to see so many of you finding a shelter in this AC air-conditioned uh, cold place in such a hot day, unusually hot for, for London. Uh, my name is Przemysl Pala, I'm the director of the Czech Center, and I really would like to welcome you here to the next round of the Ukrainian debate series with the focus on misinformation and the mass media uh, titled Information War in, in Russia. So let me begin with just stating a few facts. Uh, the 24th of February has changed the European geopolitical landscape as we knew it uh, with the Russian military aggression uh, in Ukraine, which has resulted in the largest post-World War II number of casualties, over 8 million people are refugees, and one-third of the Ukrainian population's dis displacement and certainly the unprecedented detrimental uh, impact on Ukrainian economy. So the Czech Center, along with many other organizations and uh, individuals, has responded swiftly with providing fundraising support and donation to the people and children in need in Ukraine, as well as organized uh, just in very few days after the, uh, the invasion, the first discussion uh, panel on military and geopolitical repercussions uh, of the aggressions. The first panel, I mean, some of you might have been here, was led by the former trade uh, chief, Ed Lucas, from the, the Economist. The second debate uh, was dedicated to humanitarian and, and refugee aid in Central European countries where vast majority of refugees uh, has settled. So today, our attention uh, will turn to information and how they are being used or misused, uh, the role of mass media in this war conflict, in particular in, in Russia. So first, let me state that information and the news have uh, or the distortion, the distortion of the news uh, and manipulation is as old as the communication news uh, itself. Uh, it might go way, way back uh, over 50, 500 years as presented in the eye-opening exhibition uh, Breaking the News at the British Library, which some of you might have seen, which I highly recommend you to, uh, to visit if you haven't done it. The news providers, respectively the owners, in many instances tend to promote their own interest and cater to audience they do serve. There is a clear evidence about this approach in Russian state-controlled media. As part of the preparations of the invasion, not only in the military terms, the Russian authority has significantly increased the uh, budget, almost quadruple, for the state media for the months of February and March, uh, according to verified resources, to disseminate information about the war. I think it's interesting to see it's been planned for these two months, so the expectations was that the war, war will, not, will last only a few, few weeks. The disinformation campaign's targeted audience uh, was certainly at the home turf in, in Russia, 
coupled with a strict ban and persecutions of free local media, but also in foreign countries. To name just a few uh, was China, India, South Africa, Brazil, the Arab world. So there is no surprise or coincidence that many of these countries have abstained in the UN vote condemning the invasion and and oppose the trade embargoes which were uh, implemented against Russia. So as the world continues, uh, there are many questions such as if and for how long the President Putin will be able to maintain such a strong public support. Has the West underestimated and misunderstood the Russian natural, uh, in quotes, with respect to the ongoing support or is there a case that this military conflict will transpose to an information war within Russia? And I'm very pleased that uh, to address these and other questions, we have gathered a very acclaimed international panel of, uh, of experts uh, on communications, the use of information, media, and of course the Russian state control media environment. So with that, I would very much like to welcome here uh, Dr. Jade McGlynn. Uh, Jade, she is a senior researcher in Monterey Initiative in Russian Studies, based in the Middlebury Institute. She was formerly also lectured at the University College in Oxford, and we might look for her new book, which is upcoming by the end of this year, uh, The Kremlin Memory Makers. The second panelist is Dr. Václav Štětka. Uh, Václav is a senior lecturer in communications and media studies at the School of Social Sciences and Humanities and Logborough University. Uh, he's also had to hold position at the Charles University and, uh, and, and University of, of Oxford. Uh, among his research uh, interests are dissemination and impact of misinformation and the relationship between the media and the young democracies. Last but not least, uh, I would really like to welcome here the chair of today's panel, uh, Maxim uh, Alyukov from the King's College London. Uh, I also would like to uh, really kindly thank him for stepping in with a very short notice. Uh, so the, the, the plan, uh, Chair Deborah Heinz has to travel to cover the defense ministerial meeting in in Brussels. Uh, so Maxine is a past postdoctoral fellow at the King's Russia Institute here in the King's King's College, and he has made numerous appearances in in media in in the UK and other European medias. So with that, I would like to turn the the floor to to Max, uh, who is going to chair the discussion and will share some initial opening remarks. Yeah, thank you very much for organizing this event, and it's my pleasure to chair this uh, extremely timely and important panel. Um, so I think we have a great selection of speakers who can address both some internal processes in Russia related to information and also a broader perspective such as uh, disinformation in, in Europe and other countries and political implications. So I, I don't want to take much of, of your time. I think I'll just kick start, uh, kick off the discussion by kind of outlining the key issues which I think uh, were forcibly raised by this war. So obviously there are many issues such as 
just forcibly display, displace populations, the loss of human life, but um, the manipulation over information is, has been one of the key issues uh, discussed by scholars and experts alike. So, and um, first of all, it's of course the issue of uh, propaganda and kind of countering Russian propaganda, Kremlin propaganda, both inside Russia and outside Russia. And uh, the war, I think, quickly revealed some issues. Scholars, especially those who work in uh, on political psychology and communication, were aware of, but they were not really discussed outside of this narrow circle. Uh, so when Russia-Ukraine conflict evolved into full-scale war, I think the reaction was, um, especially journalists, they emphasized the importance of kind of puncturing Russia's disinformation bubble inside Russia and delivering alternative information about the war to the Russian public. So, and the range of proposed measures varied from uh, using uh, targeted advertising campaigns to uh, establishing direct lines to let international audience to call Russians and send messages. And then we were um, very surprised to see that this actually doesn't work. So when people encounter facts, they do not change their opinions. And apparently, um, yeah, they, they do not even trust their own friends and relatives from Ukraine, not to mention some random people calling them and asking to reconsider their attitudes. Um, and yeah, so it quickly became clear that facts are not something that change people's attitudes automatically for many reasons. And one of the reasons is that uh, they have their own prior um, attitudes, ideas, predispositions, and they tend to reject facts which are inconsistent with what they think and with their political views. And human psychology is just about stories, interpretations, not about uh, information and facts. And this leads me to the first question, which I, which I think it would be great to discuss. So what are these uh, narratives which resonate with uh, their attitudes? And can we offer some alternative stories and interpretations of the war? Um, so, uh, because Kremlin propaganda does not exist in vacuum, it resonates with certain grievances. So, uh, what is what can be our uh, response? So, and I'm sure that Jay has a lot of stuff to say about this issue. Uh, <clears throat> so, the other issue which I encountered personally, both personally and also in my research, is that uh, one of the functions and strategies of propaganda is not to convince people, it's also to confuse them and to undermine trust in uh, media and institutions. So, very often Russian state media bombard people with different interpretations which do not necessarily form a coherent interpretation. So, it was uh, the case with MH17, it was the case with Bucha, and with many other important events. And uh, I've been collecting my data, uh, some data myself, talking to people uh, in Russia whose uh, views range from active uh, Protest, protest against the war, to active support of the war. And it was interesting to see that uh, many of them, even those who support the war in Russia's actions, they are painfully aware of the manipulated and kind of constructed nature of media discourse. So, so they know that they're being uh, fed propaganda and uh, basically uh, yeah, they claim that, okay, I cannot trust Russian media, but I cannot trust Ukrainian media either. I cannot trust Western media either. And uh, moreover, propaganda itself becomes kind of a barrier for discussions. So they say, I'm not going to discuss this issue with, with other people because other people are brainwashed. So it kind of prevents people from discussing these issues and they get stuck in their own heads. Uh, consuming this propaganda without being exposed to alternative sources. So if we deliver some alternative uh, interpretations, how do we deliver, we deliver them in the way that in, without making people discard them as propaganda? Uh, and the other issue, which I think we briefly discussed in the beginning, is that, is that it's also a very uh, 
massive cumulative exposure. So uh, when the war started, many people, uh, scholars and experts, started to translate Russian propaganda. They started to um, assume this role of propaganda watcher, uh, watchers and translators. Uh, and uh, most often they focus on the most horrific examples of Russian TV propaganda, like, for instance, uh, Salavyov claiming that uh, Russians are going to nuke London or Washington, D.C. And it's just a small tip of the iceberg of what Russians are exposed to, right? Because uh, there is also entertainment, and people consume much more entertainment than news or talk shows. And it's all permeated by these uh, Kremlin narratives. And at the same time, uh, it's not only television, it's also news aggregators. It's also manipulated search engines, online media. It's also communities on social media loyal to the regime. It's also trolls and bots who manipulate global media platforms. So eventually, in the end, you end up uh, consuming so much uh, propaganda and it's not really limited to what they see on television. So um, this leads me to another question. So how do we deliver these stories and make exposure to them regular rather than incidental? Because that's what is important. And one more issue is that maybe countering propaganda is not useful at all because the problem is authoritarian regime. So what I uh, encountered is that um, we know that propaganda is just as important as uh, authoritarianism because what I noticed based on my research is that many people uh, know that they're being cons they're consuming propaganda, but they just feel uh, that there is nothing they can do. So basically, uh, very few of them actually wanted this invasion from the beginning, but when it started, they kind of get stuck in the situation and they have no they can do nothing. And when people feel powerlessness and when they're in terrible situation, they come up with justifications of why you should. It should have happened and they borrow uh, cliches and interpretations for the media in order to explain this bad situation they end up being in and uh, in this sense they're just coping with uh, traumatic experience in this way and in this sense propaganda might be not as important as the very fact that they just live in a dictatorial uh, country as a dictatorial regime and propaganda is something secondary to this more basic uh, core problem and finally, we've got a problem of disinformation abroad, which is, I think, another very important issue because uh, we started to, uh, discussing this issue very actively, but the consensus uh, in scholarly community before this, uh, it was that the effects of Russian disinformation, such as RT or fake news, are rather minimal and marginal. So when we look at RT, we, we see that the audience of uh, RT is quite small, and these people do not really engage with this context, so they're unlikely to be uh, really uh, affected by uh, these narratives. Uh, the same with fake news. There are studies tracing the impact of fake news on 2016 US elections, and we know that it's rather uh, minimal. So what people who are, seem to be affected by this disinformation abroad are people who already have very extreme uh, far-right or far-left preferences, and they kind of being drawn towards this information. But in this case, they are not being affected by this information either, right? So they just confirm their own pre-existing attitudes. And this raises uh, a number of issues. So should we try to counter this disinformation? Should we ban RT? Or uh, the desired effect of the section is just so small that we produce, uh, instead we just produce uh, accusations of violations of freedom of speech. Uh, so is it a harm, more harm or good or more good or harm? Uh, yeah, I think I'll stop here. So uh, these are, I think, five points which would be important to discuss. I think we can take on some of them or ignore them and move in some other direction. But yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you, Maxime. Um, I think that leads quite neatly actually into a number of the topics that I uh, wanted to discuss in these opening remarks. 
uh, which will focus largely on Russian domestic media, as that's the area that I've been I've been researching, um, having become interested in it when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. Um, and so there's a sort of bone-chilling uh, circuitousness or, or circularity to it. Um, it's also increasingly an area that naturally Western media and analysts are interested in. Uh, Maxime there has just been talking about sort of the, the, the newly minted propaganda watchers. And I think it's understandable why there's this interest. Um, firstly, because the narratives can seem so extremely different from, from our own coverage, um, if by our, I mean sort of collective Western coverage um, of, the, of the war in Ukraine. But also because people are trying to understand why there is seemingly so much Russian support for the war. And I say seemingly because I think there needs to be a lot of caution about how that's treated. Um, in particular, I think a lot of media cited as as if it were unproblematic, this 81% figure from the Levada Center, as if that was the sort of the number of, of, of support in Russia. And I think, I mean, if somebody with an official sounding voice called you and they knew where you lived and they knew your name and they knew where your kids went to school and they asked you, do you support the special military operation or would you like to go to prison for 15 years? <laughs> I mean, I know which way I would answer. Um, so there does need to be some caution. That's of course not to say that there isn't support and certainly that there, there are a lot of people certainly aren't actively opposed to the war. We can, we can see that. We also know what active opposition would involve, but um, we can see that. So it's not really to come down either way so much as to say, um, to treat these figures with caution. What we do know is that one of the, some of the key sort of determining factors in whether or not people support the war are generational. So under 30s, less likely, over 60s, more likely, and also, the news that they consume, and in particular the over 60s who also tend to consume a lot of television uh, news, um, so the, the awful Salavyov, um, who we've already heard about in his sort of World War One tunic, ready to, to nuke everybody. Um, the people who consume these narratives are much more likely uh, to support the war, and I think that's why it is important, and I think over the years perhaps there's been a derisory attitude towards studying Russian popular culture and some of Russian propaganda, not just the Salavyovs and the Kisilovs and the, and the worst ones, but in general, the way that the news coverage works, because you can have these extreme narratives, but often they are framed in different ways. Essentially, the Kremlin, of course, gives out its editorial um, comments on important points, but it's not that everybody has this set message that they need to repeat ad nauseum. People are able to interpret, the, the news people sort of interpret within clear boundaries um the news in different ways so often i think that's one element that's that's sort of forgotten is there is a polyphony of voices they just happen to be saying the same things but maybe in different accents maybe some not as extreme as others maybe some might add in a little caveat um and increasingly it's a much more extreme media environment of course since since early march and 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 since of course the invasion but there has been this element you know this isn't something that happened overnight and i think hopefully maybe we might even have time to discuss this i think for many in the west this felt almost like a rupture the the invasion of, of ukraine but i don't think 
of course, it was a, a full-scale invasion, and it was terrifying. But I think for actually, this is something that had been that had been building up, and and you often have this narrative in in Russian media of like where have you been for the last eight years? Um, but I think it's a good question, maybe for, maybe for all of us. They don't mean it in a good faith way. They mean it in the sense of, oh, Ukraine has been attacking Donbass, and now we've come like white knights to the rescue. But I, I do think it's it's. I actually think that. In not in the way they intended, there's a point to the question. Um, so to come back to some of the media narratives, I think um, some of the ways, some of the elements that are important are the fact that it's presented very often in terms of Russia versus the West, and then it becomes much easier to see the war as a sense of whose side are you on. Um, and it's very difficult for anybody, really, to take the side um, against their country if things are being framed that way. And, of course, sanctions help. Now, if sanctions weren't applied, they would. many in Russia would say, oh, look, they aren't supporting... The West don't really want to support Ukraine, and that's why they haven't applied any sanctions. So there'll always be a narrative um, that, that works. But naturally, of course, if you apply sanctions that affect people's daily life, they tend not to like you for doing it. So it doesn't necessarily help there. Um, but also, as well, this, this idea that Russian culture is being cancelled. Um, like Maxime, I've been doing a lot of interviews with, with some with ordinary Russians, some with sort of more in the foreign policy sphere. And one of the things they talk about a lot is the fact that on TV you'll see, you know, 10 times in one day, you know, Pushkin statues being removed or a Tchaikovsky concert has been cancelled. And of course, naturally, there's no coverage of the Tchaikovsky concerts that weren't cancelled or of the Pushkin statues that, that stand unmolested um, across the former Soviet space um so those are important aspects that sense of the whole world is is against us um and that maybe even if you did disagree with the war where are you going to go you know no, nobody else likes you so you might as well just stay here and quietly get on with it and not and not engage that said, I think there are clearer, longer-standing um, cultural issues, a sort of latent imperialism within within Russian culture, a sense of victimhood, clearly historical traumas, that collective historical traumas, um, including the trauma of the 1990s, which um, Vladimir Putin has been very um, adept at instrumentalizing. And I think it's here really where the information space really comes into its own, if we can say that, or is that its most destructive, perhaps more, more accurately put. Because... It, Reading and watching Russian state media, it can feel like entering a parallel universe um, in the sense that you have many of the same narratives around Ukraine. So there's also, you know, war atrocities. There's also sort of talk of genocide and, of course, um, you know, the horrific images of, of dead children. But in this version, it's Ukraine that's been um, trying to pursue a gen genocide against Russian speakers in, in Donbass. In this case, it's Ukraine that's been uh, committing the atrocities. So you'll see even some of the same tropes. For example, they'll often talk about Zelensky sitting in a bunker, but, of course, it's Putin who sits in the bunker in, in our version, and I think also in the real version, i.e. in reality. Um, and another one is the idea of Mariupol as Stalingrad, which um, it sounds incredible that they would that they would recognise that comparison until you realise that they're saying that it's the Azov battalion that, that turned it into Stalingrad and not them. So... <laughs> I think it's worth remembering just just how quite different it is, but that this this didn't occur sort of overnight. Like there's a whole sort of hidden context, or not even hidden, a whole very this cumulative effect that Maxime referred to, this context within which people interpret these events, because 
you have to really go back to 2014 for this, these narratives to start to make sense, and probably longer, but you know, I've got a set amount of time. Um, and but you have to go back to 2014 to the revolution of dignity and to the fact that, that it was not presented as a revolution of dignity, but very much as a violent overthrow by, um, of, a, of a legitimate president by, um, by Nazis and by, their, uh, by Nazi collaborators um, who, who they call Banderovsi as a reference to a wartime nationalist leader in Ukraine. And um, in this version, you know, the West is funding these sort of these Nazis, and Russia is riding in to to free the Ukrainians from this Western-sponsored Nazi jackboot. And I think if you understand that that's very much how events in Ukraine have been depicted for the last eight years, then all of a sudden this idea that Russia is denazifying a, a country that's um, a democratic country that, that has a Jew, elected Jewish head of state actually becomes a lot less ridiculous because it's just some, that's just the lens through which many people have understood um, you, Ukraine. Uh, many people in Russia, sorry, have understood what's happening in Ukraine over the last eight years. It's the background noise um, through, which, through which they interpret it. Um, that's not to excuse or absolve anybody because they, many Russians, you know, have family in Ukraine, so they could just pick up the phone. It's just to explain the the, the context, um, and I mean, it's very difficult because this use, in particular, of, of World of World War Two or the Great Patriotic War, um, is being is being instrumentalized. It's, it's 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 very hard to then tone the rhetoric down because you can't really negotiate with Nazis. I mean, it's it's very hard if you declare, okay, well, Nazis have taken over Ukraine. Well, how 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 can you then start to climb down or or tone down the rhetoric? Because okay, we're just going to come to a nice arrangement, an agreement with accommodation with Nazis. It's very difficult. Now, that's not to say that Nazis are the core narrative. It happens to be one of the narratives that I've focused on in my research. So um, that's probably why I talk about it so much. But um, many of the others are perhaps not that much less less paranoid. Um, and they're all equally, I suppose, dehumanizing. Um, if we think back to Putin's essay, 2021 essay, about how Ukrainians and Russians are essentially this, the same people and that the West has now been creating um, Ukraine um, into an anti-Russia. Um, and this constant sneering um, of television hosts around the Ukrainian language, like the tendency to refer to Ukraine as Nezalezhna, which means independent, but they're not saying it because they um, cherish Ukraine's independence. They're saying it in a mocking way. Just these constant little elements all add together to this broader picture where of mocking Ukrainians, of denying their identity, and ultimately, as as the years have gone on, of, of, of dehumanizing them and, and eventually of, of justifying the invasion. But of course, the, the Western aspect here is, is also important, the idea that there's a malicious West standing behind recruiting all of these Nazis and, and training them that's obsessed with humiliating Russia, just like it did in the 1990s. And I've heard this idea, I mean, we saw it in the national security strategy last year, 2021, this idea that the West is in its last death throes of, of, of agony and it's collapsing and therefore it's going to lash out. And I've heard some foreign policy um, people in Moscow d describe the feeling um, as sort of 22nd of June syndrome. And this is where um, a reference to 22nd of June 1941, when after the, the when the Nazis invaded and, and in this version of, of, of how they see it, um, Stalin knew there was going to be an invasion, but he didn't react in time and therefore within Russian um, sort of foreign policy make decision makers there's this fear um, that if we're going to be invaded then we need to react um, we need to strike first and 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 they feel that that's been an aspect 
And I think there is, I suppose the broader point I want to make is, as well as these, this incoherence that you get around events like MH17 and Butcher, there is also a coherence there in terms of many of the narratives, when they're not about specific events and, and trying to kind of deflect blame, they actually add up to create a reason, well, I don't know if coherence is the right word, but but it is a worldview, a worldview where Russia is, you know, is a hero or a victim, but never the perpetrator, or, you know, where Russia has been maligned and unfairly treated, and it's finally sort of getting its um, great power status back and, and defending itself. And I think there are many different ways that that story is told and some of my own research for example into into the state media but also into sort of telegram engagement shows that there are many different different ways that the i suppose that the message is wrapped up but essentially quite often um over the years it is still a very similar message of this um of, and and a message as well that builds on longer standing tropes and myths of, of besieged fortresses and and dangers from the west and and moscow's third rome and messianism so i think there is this cultural element um that that needs to be um that needs to be reminded but i think i'll leave it there um and hopefully there's some scope for us to discuss some things Hey, um, good uh, evening uh, from me as well. It's a pleasure and honor to be here sharing the podium with two experts on Russia, uh, which I myself am not. I am a communication media scholar. Um, my research interests uh, involve uh, issues of, of disinformation, uh, but also polarization, especially with regards to Central and Eastern Europe. And these two, actually, these two uh, Trends and concepts go quite well together, unfortunately, because we know from research, not just my own, that disinformation does feed polarization, and that's what we are seeing essentially in in many countries at the moment, even with the con in the context of the uh, of the war in Ukraine. But I want to start my brief remarks by um, going back to the actual term on the on the screen there, the information war, uh, and I have to admit that I don't like that term particularly um, because it sort of implies a sense of symmetry, um, sense of there, there being two or more sides, uh, pretty much equal, that are battling a war. But that's not the case, what we are observing uh, right now in, in, in Ukraine, obviously, uh, because uh, there's hardly any symmetry in, in, this, in this case, just like on the actual battlefield. Uh, this war is highly asymmetrical. Uh, the sheer volume of propaganda and deception techniques that are being employed by the Russian state apparatus uh, uh, and, and, and the affiliated media is, is just vastly greater, bigger uh, than anything, and reaching more audience uh, internationally than anything that the Ukraine is uh, capable of producing uh, technically. So, so the first thing to acknowledge uh, in this context is that Russia does operate a, a highly complex, sophisticated propaganda and disinformation apparatus, one that has been being built for many years, uh, often drawing on old propaganda and deception techniques that were developed even under the former communist uh, secret service, and which obviously have been adapted to the new digital, uh, digital information age. The core of the propaganda system 
or apparatus, uh, of course, con con consists of the state media uh, such as uh, Sputnik, RT, uh, TASS, uh, RIA Novosti, some of which have been successfully shut down by by the EU uh, and the UK. We, we're going to talk about that uh, later, whether it was a good, good idea or, or, or not. Others are still operating. Uh, all the news agencies in the world are still uh, taking, um, uh, getting uh, news from from TASS, for example. So the Russian state still has, despite all this ban on, on Sputnik and RT, still has means to uh, obviously uh, disseminate uh, in, information abroad. But of course, apart from these established uh, channels, uh, arguably, if, or perhaps more, even more important branch of this disinformation machine has been computational propaganda, uh, already mentioned uh, briefly by Maxim here, consisting of the armies of bots and, and trolls, troll farms, obviously, the most infamous of them being the uh, St. Pet Petersburg-based uh, Internet Research Agency. And, and those have been tasked with uh, uh, the, the, the task of amplifying and, and, and exploiting political divisions across Western democracies uh, on social media uh, especially and of course with, uh, the, with the task of uh, influencing and manipulating elections including the 2016 US presidential elections we'll never know how big of a, a part these bots and trolls played in the decisions of the American voters to vote uh, Donald Trump there isn't a research that could uh, exposed, uh, proved that, but we know that there has been an influence and, and that it has had certain impact. Um, so, uh, just to, to, to sum up this point, if someone is waging information war, it is the Russian government, clearly, so I think it's, it's much more important to talk about in this context about Russian information war against Ukraine and against the West, uh, Western democracies, that, that's what we are observing. Um, so the question that has, has already been raised by Maxim is, uh, and, and um, the question that is on everyone's minds, I suppose, is just how impactful this, this Russian disinformation uh, uh, machinery is in the West. And again, uh, that's uh, often the response that scholars, uh, scholars make, which doesn't satisfy the audience, but I have to say that we don't have the data to, to, to say exactly how many percent how many people are affected or 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 what is the uh, explicit effect of, of Russian disinformation but we have some hints and yes it has been mentioned by Maxim that uh, the previous studies have been kind of skeptical about the level of, of impact of Russian disinformation on the audiences but uh, the problem with many studies in, 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 in this field is that they are looking at a very narrow uh, situation or, or particular point in, in time, particular case, and uh, they, they rarely take into consideration the long-term effects of uh, narratives that are promoted by this uh, disinformation apparatus and by state-owned, uh, state-controlled uh, media um, um, in Russia. So uh, we're talking about uh, a, a much more complex disinformation ecosystem that is being promoted and, uh, and uh, supplied with disinformation for a long period of time. And from this disinformation ecosystem, the, 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 the uh, narratives uh, and conspiracy theories 
flow into the mainstream media by covert techniques uh, often difficult to, to detect. But in the, at the end of the day, uh, the fact is that there is a lot of conspiracy theories and disinformation floating around which we cannot uh, draw back to particular source. We don't know where they originated from, but we know that uh, they are being shared uh, by vast numbers, especially on social media, uh, by dozens of millions of people. We know, for example, that in 2000, between 2015 and 2017, so around the time of the US uh, elections, 31 million Americans shared piece of disinformation that actually we know originated from St. Petersburg, from the, from the troll farm in St. Petersburg. Is it a lot uh, over the course of three years? I would say it, it, it's, it's, it's quite significant. Has it had an impact? We don't know. We can assume that it might have had, but that, that, that's all we know. But I, I just want to mention a few figures from my own research or research I have been part of. It's just came out or not uh, not even has, it hasn't even been published yet but we know uh, from the data we have some preliminary findings uh, of uh, the, the the salience and susceptibility of western public towards the russian uh, disinformation concerning ukraine war this research has been done in 19 countries around uh, Europe plus the United States. And uh, from this, uh, actually, uh, I mean, this, it's, it's, it's a glass half full, half empty, I suppose. But uh, for me personally, it was a, a bit surprising seeing that the number, the percentage of population in most of these countries that believe in some of the worst conspiracy theories that were mentioned by, by Jade, for example, uh, or the existence of uh, the uh, laboratories in, in Ukraine that are producing uh, biological weapons uh, and then they are funded by the US, that's one of the main conspiracy theory, or about uh, the, the, the Ukraine government being run by Nazis and other strong narratives. So the percentage of people who believe that is between 10, 15, percent across the most of these 19, 19 countries. So you might say it's not very much. It's definitely less than uh, what we have been seeing before the Ukraine war, uh, when we asked about, or other scholars asked, other uh, research asked about other types of conspiracy theories and how many people believe in them. But there are some interesting country differences. So uh, the, the countries where there's a uh, more people, a bigger percentage of people believing in, in these uh, conspiracy theories and, and the Russian disinformation. So those are uh, closer to uh, Russian sphere of influence. So Serbia definitely is, is an outlier there. Um, majority of people actually, or, or close to 50% to, to, uh, believe in, 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 these, in these conspiracy theories. Greece is another example, perhaps surprisingly for some, but we, we need to look at both the history of Russian influence in these countries and as well as the state of domestic politics, the level of polarization, uh, to, 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 to find some explanation. And on the other pole, uh, on the side, on the other uh, end of, of this uh, spectrum, we, we find uh, Scandinavian countries who uh, show very strong resilience against uh, Russian disinformation. So the percentage of people believing in, in those kind of theories is uh, between 5 5 10%, very, very, very small. So, um, yeah, I think that uh, we, we can draw different conclusions from, from this, but clearly uh, one of those is, is that uh, 
whether or not people are going to fall for Russian disinformation and conspiracy theories depends a lot on uh, factors such as uh, the, the extent of political and cultural polarization within a particular country, uh, as well as on people's trust in their own democracies, in their own uh, democratic institutions. So uh, institutional trust and trust in mainstream quality media is uh, very strongly correlated with susceptibility to, to Russian, Russian disinformation. I think I leave it here, and we will certainly return back to, to some of the points. Yeah, thank you very much for your really insightful uh, points. Yeah, I, I think we, we, we're just going to discuss it for, for a bit and then open the floor for discussion. Uh, yeah, I, I think I, I have a couple of questions. You can also ask questions, ask me or each other. Uh, um, yeah, the, one of the issues I've been, uh, I think the first question for you, Jade, uh, I've been thinking about for, and you mentioned all this uh, kind of world of propaganda built uh, continuously across years, and obviously it's not a something new, right? So it just did not appear out of blue. Uh, they've been building this uh, kind of uh, universe of propaganda for, for, for a decade. Um, and uh, one of the core ideas underlying this narrative is the idea of the 90s, of the painful post-socialist transition, and propaganda kind of plays on this idea. So uh, in the 90s, Russia was put on its knees by NATO and by Western countries, and Putin is a person who put Russia back on the map, on the map made it great again. And this is a kind of the linchpin, the core uh, of, of, of many narratives. So in terms of memory, in terms of different interpretations within this propagandistic machine, can we imagine some maybe alternative never narrative uh, which could frame this this issue and other related issues uh, differently? Because it's I think that even the, the denazification idea it doesn't really resonate well with the public. So because uh, in a couple of months after the war started, uh, there was quite 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 interesting funny leak uh, from the Kremlin where uh, these people are obviously conducting focus groups and surveys, and it appeared at a certain point that this term is not clearly understood by people. So people just do not clearly understand what denazification denazification means because it's something Putin came up with uh, without any without any thinking. Uh, NATO narrative resonates much more. So this is something people respond to and you see it on all surveys. Uh, so Thank you, Maxime. So I think just to quickly come on the denazification point, um, if if we look at sort of the, you're right that the term denazification um, has been dropped and nobody really understands what it means, but references to Nazis and to nationalists are still very, very high if we look at sort of the TV um, uh, transcripts, if, if you analyse the sort of keyword usage, say against um, they use more frequently than the weather, for example. Um, so they're still very high. So I think denazification is just, I mean, it doesn't sound, it's not just linguistically, it's a difficult sounding and quite technical word in English, and it's the same in Russian. So I think that that's not a big surprise. I mean, similarly with the Z symbol, it doesn't really mean anything. It's a bit of an empty signifier, which has its pluses. You can pour different meanings into it. And a lot of the time that meaning is the St. George's ribbon or the, the sort of commemorative ribbon for World War II, which is also very tied up with um, with the war in Ukraine, has been tied up with the war in Ukraine since 2014, but it's starting to drop away because ultimately it just didn't really stick, to not use an academic term, but, you know, they threw it at the war, it didn't really stick. Um, 
And then, um, sorry, remind me, what was your first question? <laughs> yeah, can we imagine an alternative frame ah, for this mm -hmm. 90s NATO Russian humiliation mm -hmm. narrative, which would, I think, resonate with the public? Mm -hmm. I think it's a great question. Um, I I don't know. I mean, obviously, you do have different interpretations of the 90s. If you go to the, even now, I think the Yeltsin Center is still open. If you go to the Yeltsin Center in, in Yekaterinburg, you're going to get a very different interpretation of the 90s there. Um, I think... I don't know. I mean, it's a question I've been thinking about a lot, particularly in terms of this idea of national humiliation. Um, and I, I think it's very hard to counter these sorts of narratives um, because it's such a powerful idea, the idea of sort of humiliation and then of, then of resurrection. I don't mean to be pessimistic, but I mean, there's every reason to be pessimistic at the moment. And I, I can't personally think of one, but, but, but maybe... Maybe you can think of something that, that might resonate your turn. You think of one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, so, like, uh, they've been building the nar narrative by emphasizing certain traumatic uh, elements of the 90s and kind of completely downplaying others, right? So, 90s is also uh, a time of openness, uh, some relative plural democracy. So, uh, maybe it could be some narrative emphasizing these elements and emphasizing pain and humiliation and something like this yeah but I, I don't have an answer no i think as well i guess it's maybe partly it's political too in the sense that i think um i think many people in the west like that is their view of the, of the 1990s of people who know about russia um in the 1990s but maybe haven't studied that period that okay but there was a lot of freedom and you know this happened and there was access to this but particularly and i mean, I mean you, you you're russian so you'll know more but um in my conversations particularly in the provinces um it seems like a time that just nobody it's fine having international travel and nice products but if you can't afford them and if you've lost even in my interviews now for the sorry to skip around but even in my interviews now about with people who support the war quite a lot this has come up this idea of lost status you know my dad was was a colonel or my dad was was in the army had a high position and then he had to go and 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 lay bricks and that was very difficult for us and now i feel like we're we're you know we're finally you know turning this around and we're reclaiming not the idea of the Soviet Union but but the things that we held dear and often those things that the Soviet Union apparently held dear are just things that that person tends to like you know it might be sort of naukas or academia um, or it, you know it might be you know respect for the army or it might be different things but I think that is where it's so effective the propaganda is this way that it resonates with people and I think this merging of personal and a national humiliation that that people the personal humiliation that people felt in the 1990s and this merging of it with a kind of with russia's perceived geopolitical humiliation and the references to the bombing of kosovo and, and i think it's been very it seems to me that it's it's very powerful even i find it quite powerful you know <laughs> i didn't live in russia in the 90s i didn't have a dad who was a colonel um and so i don't know how to counteract that <laughs> Uh, yeah, so could you introduce yourself and you need a mic? It's a bit like you talking about the 90s and now. Um, it's all this information. It could be the Russian people are split many ways and it's sort of like a stalemate. But what is the effect on their actions? It, it all seems very passive at the moment. And because the Russian government outlaws protest and there's no particular votes coming up how what what's going to break the dam 
how are the Russian people going to react to everything that's happening now? Or are they just going to sit there, um, I don't know, like the Czechs in the <laughs> 70s and 80s and let it happen over their head? I don't see the connection between people's reaction and behavior and the information. Is it on that? There we are. Um, there's a deliberate cultivation of this apathy. I think that that is that's something that a lot of the information deliberately um, targets, and, and you spoke as well about the, the sort of the confuse. Many of the narratives they can be quite confusing. So I don't think that the apathy isn't linked to to the propaganda. I, I think it's a direct and, and deliberate consequence of it. Yeah, definitely. There are many studies showing that the effect of propaganda, one of the effects of propaganda is apathy. So it's not like people believe in it. Uh, it's like they are shown a completely cynical picture of reality where they are told that all media are manipulated. There is no democracy. There is no democracy in Russia, but there is no democracy in the United States or the Great Britain, United Kingdom. So it doesn't make sense to protest. So it has very negative impact on the potential for collective action, even for people who do not believe propaganda, who consider it a completely fake uh, news. Thank you so much for this panel. Um, I'm wondering how you would feel about um, the, my, my sentiment is that there's tremendous hypocrisy and condescension in the West towards Russian propaganda, as if we in the West didn't have propaganda. It appears that it's um, slipped everybody's memory that perhaps arguably the greatest atrocity of the 21st century, which was an attack on a sovereign country based on falsified evidence, the Iraq war, that was produced by Western propaganda. And, you know, Noam Chomsky and manufacturing consent, he talks about all about how Western, you know, propaganda West, the West produces hegemony through propaganda. My second question is um, to do with the Minsk Accords. I, I'm very frustrated in the Western media how there's just no talk about the Minsk Accords. Um, that was the only concrete thing that existed that we can point to and say this this would have stopped the war. There was Minsk One, Minsk Two, and the Normandy format with France, Germany, Ukraine, and Russia. And um, it was, you know, the responsibility of France and Germany. They they had the leverage to stop both Russia and Ukraine okay, from com continuously violating the Minsk Accords. And, um, you know, I've been in France the last three months, and there's wall-to-wall -wall coverage of Ukraine war, eight hours a day, but they never, they never talk about the Minsk Accords. And then, finally, my third thing is um, I, I want to thank Professor McGlynn for um, finally, it's the first time I've heard a Westerner tr give the perspective what it looks like for Russian people, and I really appreciated that. And I'm wondering, you mentioned about how one of the narratives you talked about was um, Donbass. In Russia, they're saying that um, Ukraine is committing a genocide in Donbass. I'm wondering if you've heard of this French journalist. Her name is Anne-Laure Bonnell, B-O-N-N-E-L, and she's made a documentary called Donbass. It was got a prize at Amnesty International, then it got censored since February 24th, and she says that Poroshenko took away the pensions of Russian-speaking Ukrainians in the Donbass, and that it was November 2nd, 2014, he gave a speech that cut off ties between Donbass, between the Russian-speaking Ukrainian, uh, the, the Russian-speaking Ukrainians in Ukraine versus Ukraine. So I'm wondering, um, there's a lot of, you know, back and forth. I've seen different people say different things about it. Is it true that Poroshenko, in November 2014, he took away the pensions of the Russian-speaking Ukrainians in Donbass? Thank you so much. 
So I'll I'll start just quickly. I just wanted to thank the honourable lady for giving us a practical demonstration of how Russian propaganda and deception techniques really work. I feel like I was listening to a moderator from from RT at the at the moment because it's precisely the kind of strategy employed by Russian propagandists. What about is exploiting specific topic to cover others? that don't meant to be discussed and, and, and pointed out. I mean, uh, we're not talking, we're not discussing here uh, what, what preceded the war or, or, or the kind of geo of uh, the, the kind of events that uh, uh, set in motion what we're seeing now. We're discussing what what's going on at the moment and the Russian propaganda apparatus that cannot be possibly compared to anything that exists in the West and I thought I made it clear in, in my uh, original intervention that the Western countries, democracies, are not using armies of bots and trolls, for, for example, to influence uh, other, um, uh, other democracies and, and public opinion. That's, that's for the start, but we could continue. Um, I suppose, just to come on to the point, um, I find this differentiation of of and I'm not a linguist a scholar of linguistics but I find the dis this differentiation of sort of Russian speaking Ukrainians and Ukrainian speaking Ukrainians a little bit artificial in the sense that to my in my understanding every pretty much all Ukrainians are effectively bilingual they they understand um both languages it's this this idea of, of that there's some kind of separate um ethnicity it, it, it seems like something that exists in in the west's mind and very much based on um, you know, certain maps that get put out about electoral preferences that also aren't really relevant since Zelensky's, um, where pretty much everybody, I think, apart from somewhere in Lviv, voted for him. So some of these divisions, I think, are outdated and some of them are overdone. But in terms of the pensions, um, yeah, my understanding is that Ukraine, um, in a difficult position, did did stop paying the pensions of occupied Donbass. I mean, just, just to answer your question. Uh, yeah, just a quick comment, and then I see two hands there. Yeah, uh, so I'm not going to address the rest. Uh, two other questions, two, two last questions, because I think we discuss information and disinformation. But speaking about Iraq and other propaganda in other contexts, you're obviously right that there are many other issues associated with propaganda in Western context, uh, bias, polarization. Uh, so, but I think you should use. We can use comparisons analytically or politically. Politically, we use comparisons to blame people. That's what Putin does right now. So uh, they start. That uh, they bombed Iraq, so I have a right to bomb uh, Ukraine. Uh, this is just a blame, shifting blame, um, and it's not an analytical comparison. Um, analytically, we should use it to draw some conclusions, and in the sense, yeah, there are people doing research on uh, bias in American media. That's fine. So we are just not discussing American media right now. We could probably organize a different event and discuss this issue, but we're just discussing um, Ukraine and Russia and disinformation. Uh, thank you very much uh, for this opportunity. My name is Alexei. And, uh, well, first of all, I want to say like uh, a little remark about why people do not protest in Russia. And maybe it's uh, 
uh, not uh, understandable for uh, for everybody, but uh, actually uh, there is a very high amount of repressions inside Russia today. And like a year ago, when there were protests against Navalny imprisonment, uh, I think there were like. Uh, something like 5,000 people imprisoned uh, during that time, and also it has uh, Russia has uh, has real uh, repressions against those people who uh, just try to repost something on Facebook uh, talking about the war and something like this. So it's very hard to protest when you realize that you just write something on Facebook and then you get a knock on door and a policeman comes inside your flat and you're uh, imprisoned after that. That is one of the very important things. Like many people realize they're ready to protest, but they have a chance to protest only once because they will have no second opportunity. It's not like the rally in the Western country. It is like the rally that must uh, have uh, the result. In case it does not have a result, it means prison. Uh, so. Uh, the other thing I'm really interested, like when we're talking about this uh, sociology, about what, uh, about the polls, what people think inside Russia, uh, what do you think? Do you think that uh, some sanctions, sanctions to some extent, it helps Putin's propaganda, speaking that uh, like uh, the Western culture, it, it tries to cancel your culture, and it increases the support of Putin inside Russia. How do you think? That, how does it affect Putin and his regime? I think, yeah, I, I think that the regime does use it in order to put um, does use sanctions, the imposition of sanctions, particularly that affect um, ordinary people, to um, as propaganda. But to be honest, I can't really think of a line that they wouldn't use to help their propaganda. So that's not really an argument for or against applying sanctions. I know that that's not how you were framing it. One thing that I have found that's interesting um, in my uh, findings, and that's also been confirmed to me by quite a few people in Moscow, is that the sanctions against people like Kabayeva, against uh, you know the oligarchs, they're really, really popular. People really like those. <laughs> so Britain finally got some good PR, I think, when they went for Kabayeva. So I think um, we, we can all join forces in encouraging um, the government and all governments to sanction more of those. Um, so at least there's there's one area of, of agreement. Uh, yeah, uh, I think that uh, major sanctions are designed to target oil and gas and oligarchs and politicians. And obviously, uh, ordinary people are affected too. And you, I think, can trace when you talk to people, sometimes this topic resonates. So when you discuss sanctions, people feel like uh, you're trying to teach them, you are humiliating them uh, using sanctions, but um, it might, I think, somehow increase Putin's support among some segments of society, but that's uh, just small compared to major targets of sanctions. So I will start from beginning. My name is Irina Fashuk and I'm a Ukrainian. I'm from Bucha. And actually interesting um, just to know your like um, opinion, if you will like searching information about influence Orthodox Church on Russians people, like a propaganda, because actually it is like a huge influence. As uh, you mentioned about like Serbia, um, like Greece, and uh, they really like sometimes like support this war from this uh, kind of church, because like Kirill, he doesn't have any uh, like position. It it means that he supports this war, and 
people listening to uh, like this uh, like uh, churches people and they are like keep calm and that's all I mean yeah, that he supports war actually yeah, yeah. orthodox church and uh, nowadays it's like 100 uh, like 40 million people like keep calm uh, continue like uh, like this and okay in prison but still 140 million people keep calm um just to come to the point on the orthodox church um Clearly, um, Patriarch Kirill is just another pillar of propaganda, and he does an awful lot to, to justify it. I, to be honest with you, I was very happy to see that he was sanctioned today by the British government, because I, the idea that he is a man of, of... I mean, I'm not a person of religion or faith, so I can't really sit here and say who is, but it seems... I, I find him remarkable in, in all of the worst ways. Um, but that's really all I have to say. I mean, it's probably more of a political than an academic It's like point. also like propaganda. It's one of the like uh, feature of propaganda. As I have, for example, a friend, uh, she's in, from Tomsk, and we stop like communicating because she believes just uh, to church. Because yeah, totally, of this. Totally. And she's my age. And she supports war. And I was saying whole like, stories from Bucha. No. She just, it's just my age, same age. So uh, I saw a hand there. Philip Schlipacek, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a patron of Faith Matters, the country's leading interfaith charity. By, by my surname, you'll see that I'm not an Anglo-Saxon. Uh, I identify as being Polish. I have family that were originally from the Ukraine. I have 17 Ukrainian refugees in my home in Poland. So I have first-hand experience, not from, from being a journalist, but first-hand experience of family and people in my home in Poland. My, my point uh, is that the Putin has been able to get away with this for one reason, and a lot of Russians do not regard, I'm sorry there's Ukrainians here, they don't regard Ukraine as being a proper nation-state. And it's been very, very easy because it's not necessarily seen as an invasion of another country. It's putting down an internal part of what was the Soviet Union. And again, he's been very, very clever, okay, in using the Bandera card, okay. As a Pole, I'm well aware what Bandera said. The sins of the grandparents are not the sins of the children or the grandchildren. The new Hitler is Putin not the Ukrainians. What happened in the war is gone. It's a democracy and there are more far-right people in France, this country, and most of the thing than there is in the Ukraine. Thank you. Uh, I think you, to a great extent you are right in the sense that there are, there are many people who actually believe that Ukraine is an independent nation, but still from the Soviet times, you've got this uh, gentleman over there. Yeah, Mike, please. Uh, you all do very interesting research, but I was wondering how scientific you are. So in terms of, um, because you like, uh, there is a, I could see a bit of subjectivity, so it's like, mm -hmm. but uh, I wanted to see, so like, uh, do you get some peer review, sort of like, um, <laughs> Yeah, so because it uh, comes with a bit of a mixture, sort of um, of uh, current affairs, and and also kind of uh, at the same time, you kind of you are in research institutions, you do some research, so counterparty research, 
but uh, some research needs some proofs, like for example, some data. Uh, it's uh, and it's kind of it could be kind of one-sided because you uh, it's reviewed only by uh, Western institutions, but it's not reviewed by, for example, Russian uh, researchers. So it's a bit kind of a, what kind of I'm just wondering how much subjectivity you may have and what kind of uh, um, if you do some sort of uh, if you follow kind of uh, a patterns of like uh, of reviews and uh, um, some uh, in some sense some scientific uh, way yeah that's kind of my, my question uh, okay so I kind of um, I'm Oleg so kind of I've been living here for about 15 years yeah, usually, uh, yeah, there is a peer review process. I don't know the people who review my papers because it's uh, double blind, so it's anonymous. I don't know the reviewers, and the reviewers don't know me. But yeah, I publish articles in academic journals, and they all go through peer review process. Uh, not sure about, uh, yeah, in Russian journals, you very rarely have peer review process. So uh, I know a little bit about Russian academia. You typically submit a paper, and the editor reviews the paper, and there is no this necessary procedures to ensure kind of uh, objectivity and anonymity. Oh, hi there. Um, so thank you very much for uh, this evening. So my name is Richard Malone. I um, work in London, but uh, before recently I was in the British Army, and in 2017 I was in counter disinformation against Islamic State in Iraq, in northeast Syria, and the big the way we phrased that problem was uh, tr trying to break, break the communication siege. So Islamic State controlled all the media internally, and it was how do we penetrate our narrative to try to shape their thinking about a world post-Islamic State. And I'm just wondering what you guys think about the role of the West, whether that's um, NGOs, governments, uh, soft power institutions. How much do you think they should be trying to break the narrative of Putin? Um, and how much do you think that could potentially backfire and actually prove Putin's narrative right? So it's just a, you know, what should you do if you're in my role in 2017, but facing, you know, Putin now? Thank you. This isn't this isn't my area of, of expertise um, either, lest, lest I be asked if I'm peer-reviewed on this answer. But um, I, um, I think that if the west is involved it should it should hide it um bluntly I, I don't think that any message that that comes from the west will be received altogether that warmly or without a healthy or an unhealthy as it may be dose of, of skepticism and cynicism so i think any kind of messaging or change of worldview, i think that needs to come organically from within russia or in a worst case scenario to look like it's come organically from from inside russia i suppose um but yeah, I think it's a very important point because uh, it's important to uh, deliver some alternative information, right? But uh, and especially now when during this crackdown, when more than 30 or 40, uh, the remaining independent media were basically blocked. But it's very important to uh, do it organically because when people know that's coming from, you know, New York Times or Washington Post, then it immediately backfires because it's a very strong propagandist rhetoric. So you immediately like use of being in a foreign agent and so on and so on. So delivering facts and alternative information is important but it's important not to raise suspicion and it works even in conversations with people so whenever you refer to some uh, foreign independent media outlet the person says well it's just disinformation from the western country so you cannot believe it um, yeah it's a 
tricky and very important and interesting question. Uh, hello, my name is Vitaly. I'm from Ukraine. Uh, I work in media sphere. Now I'm studying strategic communication in King's College. I have several remarks about this narrative of 19th. Uh, this is a very powerful narrative, I think, because uh, in general, uh, this is true for ordinary people. It was very bad time for ordinary people, and I think uh, a big problem is the lack of reflection inside uh, uh, liberal uh, think uh, about this because uh, they see just positive and don't see negative and they see this connection between how people like this information about sanction against Kabayeva and, and oligarchs they happy because they think that these people punished for 90s it's my opinion uh, it's uh, first point uh, I think in Ukraine uh, a lot of people in Ukraine they had the same mood in 90s but uh, in Ukraine, we get independence, and this idea helped to overcome this trauma. Um, maybe we should think about Russia, what benefits uh, gets ordinary Russia people uh, from 19th, and uh, which uh, drawbacks, uh, some open discussion. And uh, I want to ask you what you think, uh, how this, uh, I don't know how it say, uh, machine of propaganda pro-West should looks like to be effective because now I heard about just some alternative information but uh, when people live in space of propaganda I think alternative just alternative information it is not enough to influence uh, the view of these people thank you uh, sorry, so you're asking me about uh, how to break this uh, sort of bubble? Yes, yes, especially now when uh, a lot of TV channels are under the sanction, uh, liberal channel in Russia, and uh, a lot of connection they broke. Some websites, Instagram, Facebook, all, all this, how, how technically. In, in Russia. In Russia, yes. Yeah, well, that, that perhaps is, is more for Jade, but uh, my own opinion, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Um, obviously, uh, with uh, the limited information supply from independent uh, sources, it, it's going to be even more difficult now than, than, than before. Um, I suppose uh, uh, we, we might have to resort to some um, other uh, types of communication and uh, communicative strategies that might help um, bringing other informations outside of the government control sphere and i'm talking about simply face-to-face uh, -face communication um, bringing newspapers or or, or 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 i don't know physical um, uh, copies of of uh, people or papers that can be disseminated just like in the old days in in the in the communist countries if indeed all the other information channels will be will be controlled uh, but i i don't think we should fool ourselves into thinking that this can be done uh, quickly uh, this will take years uh, i'm afraid uh, there's not going to be any sudden sort of shift and 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 uh, and revolution information revolution uh, under under the conditions that we are observing right now and in, in russia that's that's my sort of skeptical take i don't know about jay um yeah <laughs> very similar um I mean, I don't know if Maxim, if you have, I, I don't really want to just repeat what, what Vlatsov said there. 
Um, yeah, I, I totally agree. So the tragedy of the situation is that opinions change. And when you deliver some information, people tend to change their opinions in some time. But it's just not fast enough for what we want to happen, right? So we want the war to be over right now. And... Okay. Uh, thank you. And uh, so I want to share uh, personal experience. Uh, I am from Donetsk region originally, and I observed this all pro-Russian uh, rallies uh, in 2014. And I see that a lot of people who participate in this event, uh, not aggressive part, but ordinary people, they they want some recognition of their trauma. They try to express this trauma which do, did not have reflection in society, in public space, especially in this rural region where, where people worked in some mines, in, uh, in uh, old industry. Is this on? Yeah. Uh, my name is Simone, and um, I want to come, or I would like you to comment on the influence of Russian uh, propaganda in the West. And I think, Mike, I have two questions. One is if you look on social media and on Facebook, and for example, also Facebook post about this event and the comments under it, I think most of the comments were basically bots or whatever. And I'm always wondering. What shall I do? Um, not comment. Uh, comment something different, or you know. Uh, so I think it's more a practical question. And the second point, um, there was a, I think there was a, um, a, a kind of a survey of of uh, the opinions in different European countries, and I think what was interesting was that. I think Italy was quite or more positive towards Russia than, than other countries. And I think what social media said is that in some Italian TV programs, there are quite a lot of um, uh, uh, quite a lot of space for the Russian uh, opinion. So I was wondering your comment that it doesn't matter so much whether you have RT or other uh, other kind of programs, whether that's not kind of contradicted by that, because certainly what I saw on, on social media is that people said, well, maybe um, Italy was, I think, less critical because there's more exposure to, to Russian uh, propaganda. Thank you. I think you can take it, right? I think we have uh, five more minutes, right? Uh, so take one more question. Uh, uh. So uh, sh should I answer now? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks for the question. Uh, actually, uh, you are quite right uh, if, about Italy being a bit of an outlier from from the Western uh, countries, uh, not by great extent, but in our own research that I mentioned, Italy was scoring higher on the uh, disinformation susceptibility uh, index than most other countries in, in Western Europe. Uh, not as highly as Serbia or Greece or anything like that, but there was a distinct difference. And I think that you're quite right by pointing it, pointing out to the uh, influence of Russian propaganda, not just via Facebook or social media, but via other channels, mainstream media, the fact that many Italian TV stations quite frequently host uh, uh, Russian uh, moderators or, or, or TV anchors or uh, commentators on their own programs must have something to do with that. Uh, again, we don't have the you know, scientific proof uh, and it's difficult to obtain it, but uh, I, I would go, go with that with that explanation. So uh, uh, your broader point was whether 
by banning Rush TV, RT or Sputnik is, is effective, given that there are other means by which Russia still can influence uh, Western public opinion, right? Is, is, did I understand correctly? So, first of all, my own opinion, my own point is that, yeah, it was, it was appropriate and justified to, to, to ban RT and, and Sputnik, uh, even though the way the EU has done it was not, not the best. They could have done it better, and actually the UK has done it better. Ofcom, the, the regulator, uh, British regulator, has done the due process and has revoked the license, which was entirely in its power, based on some analysis, some, some other assessment. The EU basically just said, uh, just uh, just imposed a, a, a sudden ban uh, without that, that that due process. So that that that, that technicality of the of the uh, uh, of this issue has cast a doubt uh, about about the whole whole thing. But overall, I think it was it was it was justified. And um, clearly, your example shows that it's not enough. That there are uh, there is a responsibility of individual media. Uh, uh, Western media to whether to host or, or give space, give platform to Russian uh, voices, pro-Russian, pro-Putin voices, uh, to be more specific, or whether they whether, whether just to, to 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 confront them more more critically uh, in 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 their news relays. So uh, yeah, I think there is a there is a responsibility on journalists in in western countries uh, uh, as well ban enough is is ban, the ban is not not enough and it's on its own yeah uh, i'm be almost out of time so i, I saw uh, one more hand there and so two questions to so the lady over there and then Sorry for my terrible moderation skills. <laughs> Hello, is everybody can hear me? Okay, my name is Catherine. Um, I'm working at the United Nations. I'm based in Geneva, so I'm working for the Defense Department. And I was recently in Ukraine, specifically in Mariupol. So uh, I wanted to, first of all, I would like to thank you for your fruitful debate. And I would like to hear your comment on this particular occasion. Um, I'm interested in Mariupol as um, this is my assigned area of work. So uh, with regards to Mariupol, there is no electricity, no water supply and as our topic today about information and informational warfare or something like that. So there is not only particular asymmetrical warfare in that terms, as terms of weapons, but also in terms of information. Because citizens, so civilians or even non-citizens, those who arrived from abroad, they do not have access to the internet, they do not have access to normal um, normal living supplies so they do not have access to communications to medium of communications only possible connection is through the phoenix this is from what i gather is uh from unrecognized republic of donbass so this is the only possible medium and that medium is um i could honestly say that it's been monitored by the government of Russia or by the government of 
Donbass Republic or whatever, because they do uh, they do some kind of verification process when one when one tries to get out of that city they ask a person for personal information yeah, and they ask a person short, yes sure and they ask person for their telephone so they go through the person's stuff and it's real because i've been myself in that situation and it doesn't matter whether you're a citizen of ukraine or you are a european so uh could you kindly comment on that uh point and also i would love to uh say a couple of points about professor maglin uh so she mentioned that russian language sorry we're just out of time okay i will speak to you directly then. yeah thank you okay very much. thank you yeah I, i'm not sure if i understood the question about mariupol yeah definitely they're cut off uh communications no mobile uh connections that's yeah yeah, I think it's an important technique. So basically, you cut off them from communications. They don't know what's going on, right? So they've been shelled, and it works as a form of intimidation and alienation as well. Thank you, and um, I'll try to be brief. Um, my, my name is Alona Hlivko. I'm Ukrainian um, from the west of the country, so uh, we're relatively safe. My family is also hosting refugees, uh, while my brother is fighting in the east, actually. Um, my question about information war, which I think is a very interesting topic, and I'm afraid I'm not very objective, because I do belong to one part of, of this war, um, and I certainly take sides. Um, but have you maybe done any research on how much propaganda influences state actors, governments in particular, and major decision makers in Europe. Because um, the um, terrible Minsk Accords were brought up earlier, and that, um, I feel like, was mostly caused um, by not um, quite well-informed um, position in Europe before on what Ukraine is. Um, I've started in politics in Ukraine in early 2000s, and uh, whenever our passe delegates would always go to Europe and kind of negotiate either the EU membership or NATO membership, they would always come back and share with us that uh, terms like failed state is a common narrative. Uh, then after 2014, when Russia was successfully winning propaganda war uh, and using that as hybrid warfare tool, uh, Ukraine fatigue all of a sudden became very popular um, in Europe and that would kind of prompt European leaders to try to end the conflict as soon as possible as they would claim and save lives and, and use those narratives. So how much do you think is that purely due to maybe pragmatism of Western countries or is it actually the influence of that propaganda on leaders themselves? Because we've heard so much about friendship of Putin and Merkel. We've heard of President Macron even saying that he called President Putin and it was, you know, uh, conversations for hours about Ukraine being an on stage and all the rest. Thank you. Um, thank you. Um, it's nice to end on, on a, a question from Ukrainian. Um, I'll just very briefly comment um, and because I haven't conducted research onto this, but I do think that it's part of a broader conversation about decolonizations. There's been a lot of interrogation of Russian imperial thinking towards Ukraine, but I also think there's quite a lot of Western um, imperial colonialist thinking towards Ukraine. Um, I mean, 
we see, and there's a history of this. We can go back to the Treaty of Versailles, but we won't because we're already over time. Um, but we could, um, and to to why certain certain nations and and attitudes towards Ukrainians there. And I think as well, there's also the problem. I mean, I myself have studied Ukrainian, but I came at it as a Russianist, and and I'll always be a Russianist, and I'll always have that Russianist perspective. And really, that is the only way that you can study Ukraine or Ukraine or Ukrainian the language is through is from coming at it with first a Russian lens, and that's that in itself. Is, is is problematic and it's i mean there there are some good parts there are some bad parts but it's, it's going to it's going to color how we look at it and it shouldn't be the only way that that you studies of ukraine should should be approached um so i think that's probably a broader structural again i'm not an expert in this but i would have hoped that the decisions by european and western leaders are informed by something much more reliable than comments or information from from the mass media I, I hope that they have their own uh, secret services and other sources of, uh, of information that can provide them with more or less reliable picture of what's what's going on and whether they uh, take on some other motivations or, or, or use them in their decisions that that's obviously for for others to judge but uh, in terms of information I don't think that the leaders of Western governments are, really influenced by propaganda as much as the general population. Yes, uh, I think I reluctantly <laughs> will, will stop uh, stop here. Uh, as I was saying in the in the beginning, in the brief opening remarks, uh, I think there is quite exceptional exhibition breaking the news in the British Library, and and it's really as I mentioned, eye eye opening. Uh, it doesn't deal, of course, with the Ukraine and Russia. It touches on, but it touches on Trump and Johnson and all the history, how the propaganda and media do. Influence the decision by politicians uh, and, of course, by by, by the public uh, at, at large. Um, and I think it's very relevant to the discussion we had today. And so, I would really like to thank our panelists for their insightful opinion, but also some of the answers, which I uh, honestly have to say, I was not. Uh, very positive, or well, they were not very positive, which I don't think the answers might be positive at, at this at this stage. There are some very difficult questions that you ask uh, as an audience. So I would like to thank you as well for coming and joining us, and of course thank you, uh, Maxim, for chairing the the discussion. Uh, and uh, certainly would like to thank Jade and Václav joining us this evening. Thank you.